Grab your Bibles. We're going to go to our text reading this morning, Psalm chapter 13. If you don't know where the Psalms is, just crack your Bible right down the center and you should be there. Psalm chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible with you today, there should be a paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. You can have that. Mark it up. It's your Bible now. I want you to fall in love with Jesus and the Scriptures. Get to Psalm chapter 13. When you get there, look up to me and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I'm finished with the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. Psalm 13, beginning in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're glad that you're here with us today as we continue um, in our sermon series, which is going through the book of Psalms. And what we're doing as we're going through the book of say, there is so much raw emotion that we find in this book. And Christians for thousands of years have turned to the book of Psalms for comfort and for words to express um, emotions that we have felt. And um, we've covered um, a, a gamut of topics already looking at envy and things like that. And today is really a, a particular topic that goes overlooked in church oftentimes, and that's the topic of grief. And I know what you're thinking, wow, real positive Sunday today, grief, right? But in reality, um, oftentimes the church has sort of been hijacked by Hollywood and Hallmark um, when it comes to this idea of grief. And Psalm 13 today that we're going to look at is what's known as a song of lament, um, lamentation, a song of sadness, if you will. And it's about loss. And there's actually more songs in the book of Psalms about lament and grief and sadness than there is any other type of psalm, which is very important for us to dive into. And it's important for us for a number of levels. Number one, for you individually um, to learn how to process these emotions. And then number two, for us as a church, as a body of believers, to learn how to gather around people who, who have had a loss or a tragedy in their life. The Apostle Paul says later on in the New Testament that we weep with those who weep. And oftentimes, people really don't know how to do that. And today, just as an intro, many people recognize the name C.S. Lewis, who is a profound theologian, a famous author, and a guy who's impacted my life greatly and honestly impacted my life in his fiction almost, Chronicles of Narnia, more than his theology and stuff like that. But um, a lot of people don't know his wife's name, Helen Joy. And um, C.S. Lewis and his wife, Helen Joy, were married later on in life. They were both older when they got married. And a little bit of fun trivia, they were actually married in a hospital while she was laying on a hospital bed because she had been battling cancer. And they were married there on the hospital bed. And C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read anything, just he's a hopeless romantic. He loves words, and he loved Helen Joy immensely. And they were only married for about a decade, and Helen passed away due to complications of cancer. And C.S. Lewis was devastated by this loss in his life. 
and suffered bouts of depression, almost became a recluse, um, never left his home for a long period of time. And he turned to process his emotions the way that he only knew, which is through writing. He was a writer. And he actually just wrote down in his journal for months on end, asking questions, processing the grief that he was feeling. And he never intended to publish these journals, for they were very personal to him, until a dear friend that was close to him read those and said, C.S., you, you have to publish this because this will help other people grieve. And so it was still very personal to him, so he actually published it under a fake name by the name of N.W. Clerk is the name that it was actually released under. This is the first edition. If you ever find this at a yard sale for a dollar, buy it and you'll put your kids through college, okay, right? Because uh, it was later released under his name, C.S. Lewis. But here's what's funny, a little bit of fun trivia. People bought this book, read it, and people who were friends of C.S. Lewis bought this book and then gave it to him as a gift and said, hey, this is probably going to help you through the loss of your wife. Like, what did he do? He probably just smiled and nodded, right? Bless you, right? You know what I mean? I wrote that, you know. But in the book, he says this. We were promised sufferings. They were a part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept that. And I've got nothing that I haven't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing actually happens to you and not to others. And in reality, and not in imagination. You can only write something like that if you know loss, if you know what that is. And, and oftentimes, people don't know how to respond to that. And so as I was preparing and studying for this message, I just kind of sent something out on social media and was just like, what's been one of the worst things somebody has said to you while, while you were grieving a loss, while you were grieving pain? And there was an overwhelming response of people who just chimed in and said, people almost didn't know how to handle this. And I thought, this is important for us to discuss because maybe many of you have felt this. And so things that were to not say to someone that grieves, the very first thing and most common was, I know how you feel. Um, everybody that said the thing that, was, that hurt the most was, even if somebody went through the, exam, the, 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 the same exact tragedy that I went through, which is probably not likely, when they said, I know how you feel, almost diminished a little bit of my own tragedy that I had gone through. I know how you feel. The second one was this, God will never give you more than you can handle, which is nowhere in the Bible at all. First Corinthians says that God will never put you in a temptation that there's not a way out of. And like Hallmark and stuff has got a hold of these type of things. That's why it's important for us to know the scriptures, to know truth. And understand these things. The third one was this, and I've heard this. Um, I was a chaplain at a funeral home for a number of years and heard somebody say uh, a family had lost a child and somebody walked up to them and said, um, God needed another angel. And like, that's just not true. Like, we don't die and become angels. Actually, in Scripture, we're above the angels. That the angels cannot be redeemed and understand salvation in light of these things. And when people say these things, it's not processing the grief properly. And then one of the last things was this, it will get better with time. Like, that's good on a coffee mug, okay? But time does not heal all wounds. Sometimes time makes wounds worse. Here's who heals wounds, Jesus. Time does not heal wounds, Jesus does. 
And then lastly, people said one of the most roughest things was um, someone never even acknowledging the loss, just not knowing how to do that and sort of smiling and, and sliding away. And so why is it important for us to know these things? It's important for us to process these emotions because grief can lead to all types of other emotions if we don't deal with it properly. And Proverbs actually has a verse in there that we often forget about. And it says this, Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Like we forget the type of stuff that's in the Bible. Have you ever had somebody snatch a blanket off of you and you've been cold? Or somebody pour vinegar in a wound? What does it do? It hurts. What the writer of Proverbs is saying is, listen, listen, don't miss this. There are days not to sing happy songs. There are days to grieve and to feel what we are feeling and to feel it in light of Scripture. And Psalm 13 helps us do that. David is writing this psalm. He's the author of it. And a lot of people think that David is writing this while he's running from Saul, who is king. And Saul is actually threatening David's life. But most scholars believe that David is actually referring to death itself in the psalm. When he says, least my enemies prevail over me. At least death win. And so David is literally looking at death. He is grieving death. He is grieving loss in his life. He's writing a psalm of lament. And David will help us grieve graciously. And the first thing that we have to do to grieve graciously is this. You have to acknowledge the pain. See, you thought I was going to say avoid the pain. No. We, we acknowledge the pain. And that comes from verses 1 through 2. Do you see the rhythm in it? Have your eyes on Scripture. David says this phrase over and over again. How long? How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will, must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow? How long my enemy be exalted over me? Like, the, what's beautiful about the Hebrew language is, and, and in poetry, and one of the reasons why we're doing and walking through the book of Psalms is so we can read the Bible literarily and understand what we're looking at. And so they didn't have words like totally cool and very, very awesome, dude. What they had in Scripture is they repeated a phrase over and over to signify an idea. So David is lamenting and saying, how long, how long, how long? And he says it four times in two verses. And what David is doing is he's acknowledging the pain that he's going through. And so we need a definition of grief to help us with this, and this is it. Grief is the God-given emotion to express our sadness. Grief is the God-given emotion to express our sadness. Through the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a season of life, grief is what we understand. God has given us this emotion. And do you know what I find so compelling about Christianity? how it sets itself apart from any other religion, um, science, or anything like that, is that it has a God who understands what grief is. Right? We see this in Jesus, the God-man, the image of the very God, the second person of the Trinity. And you remember the first verse that you memorized in Awanas and got your first pen, right? You remember this. In John 11, Jesus wept. Do you understand the beauty in that verse? Jesus did not avoid the pain. He stands at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, his friend. And it literally says that the other people that were standing around acknowledged that Jesus loved Lazarus dearly. 
Jesus did not avoid the pain. Jesus acknowledged the pain. And then in Isaiah 53.3, it's a prophecy of what Jesus would be like. It says this, that he would be a man of sorrows. Here's our word, acquainted with grief. Our God understands what grief is. Our God hates death. He grieves over sin. He knows what this emotion is. And grief is the God-given emotion to us to express our sadness. But you know what's interesting about it? Is that there's something under grief. There's something that motivates it. And it's this. Grief is the evidence of love. Because you do not grieve something you do not love. Right? So, literally, God has given us this emotion to show us that grief is the evidence of love. To remind us that there was love in our life. That there was a season here that God was doing something. But for us as human beings, we, we, we are sinful people. And so we don't process our emotions properly, which is why we're walking through this series. And so there are unhealthy ways to grieve. And one of the first ones is this, keeping your emotions to yourself. Look at what David says there in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul? One of the things that David is saying is, I can't keep this inside myself any longer. And one of the unhealthy ways to grieve is for you to be in isolation and to keep your emotions to yourself. And I'm, and I'm particularly prompted to, uh, to speak to the men here in this category. Because men, listen to me, we've grown up in the generation of John Wayne toughness and that that's manhood. But look at me, the Duke is dead. He died. And the God-man, the man, Jesus Christ, wept. Some of you grew up and never saw your daddy cry. And you think that you shouldn't either. And listen to me, men, weeping is not weakness, but weeping is an act of worship. And one of the strongest things you can do for that woman and those kids is grab their hands and just simply grieve. We do not keep this in. This is unhealthy. This will rot us. And the second thing is this, numbing the pain. Not acknowledging it, not necessarily avoiding it, but just numbing the pain. This is where addictions come in, right? This is where we dive back into work. This is where we keep our mind busy. This is where we do anything to numb what we are feeling in this. And numbing the pain actually only prolongs the recovery. So you know this if you've ever dealt with an addiction. You keep numbing it, and it's sort of like a delayed check, a delayed check, a delayed check. And listen to me, there will be a day where that check will have to be cashed, and it will be cashed at the cost of your family, your friends, and the loved ones around you because it will catch up with you. So you cannot numb this pain. We see the psalmist doing the exact opposite. He's acknowledging the pain. The third thing is this, becoming the victim. I've seen this all the time working in a funeral home. There have been friends and family members. When we did a funeral, that person decided, you know what? This funeral is not going to be about the person that died. This funeral is going to be about me. And it's all about me. And they do it in the form of self-pity. But self-pity is actually a form of pride because you were at the center of your life. And what the proverb says is that pride will literally rot your bones from the inside out. And then the last, the last way, unhealthy way to grieve is this chronic fear. So now you live in light of that tragedy and suffering and fear grips you. And what is fear? Fear is the, is the idea that I'm at a loss of control here and that I can't control my life anymore. 
But the reality is, is when you live in that chronic fear, you will live in a prison. And David in the psalm does not avoid it, but he acknowledges the pain because there's something particular about pain. C.S. Lewis says this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. God is doing something there. So listen, the first thing that we do is we have to acknowledge the loss. We have to acknowledge the pain. But listen, we cannot stay there. We have to move. We have to do something. And that's what the psalmist does. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes. The second thing is this. You have to ask God for a new perspective. Oh, this is good. Right? So we acknowledge the pain. This hurts. But we also, this pain prompts us to action. This pain has us do something. And what it does is it drives us closer to God in reality. It doesn't have us run from God, but rather run to God because that's what David does. And he asks for a new perspective and he says, light up my eyes. Do you know that's the exact same phrase from, some, from Psalm 119, 18? where David says, open up my eyes that I might behold wondrous truths from your law. He's saying, God, show me something here that I do not see. Because we believe Romans 8.28 is true, right? For all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you know the key phrase in that passage? Not God, not purposes, not love, all things, all. Tragedy, suffering, loss, grief, that that's not wasted in your life, but God is actually doing something in light of that. But how we know this is David uses two words for God in this. Look in verse 3. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord. Lord, he uses the Hebrew word Jehovah, which lets us know this, that God is personal. Isn't that incredible? That David knows that he can run to God because God not only knows, but listen, God cares. No other religion has that. Allah is not personal in Islam. You can't know Allah. Buddha's just fat, right? Let's just break that down. He's not personal. He didn't give a rip. It's about being personal. It's about a God who's not only sovereign over creation and doing all of these things and who spoke the Milky Way into existence, but a God who cares about you and your suffering, and in your pain, and in your trial, that God is personal. But the next thing is this, he uses the word for God, Elohim. O Lord, my God, which lets us know this, that God is powerful. You know why? Because the phrase Elohim, David uses the exact word for God in verse 3 that is used for God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth, which means this. This is why some of you came to church today, because this is a word for you. That if God could handle creation, then God can handle your situation. Well, you think it depends on you. You thought God needed your help. That's what you thought. You literally think God is in the heavens going, I just don't know what to do. Because I needed them. Because if they blow it, I'm done, man. Right? Creation and salvation, that's all I got. That's all I could do, right? That's not... Our God that spoke the Milky Way into existence, the sun that scorches us today, He said in a breath 
And what David says is, I go back and I look at your wonder. Psalm 19, verse 1. For the heavens declare the glory of God in the sky above his handiwork. So when the wind blows through the trees, when the rain falls on the roof, and when the sun rises, God is shouting at us. And he's saying, I can do this. I am powerful. And I can handle this situation. This is significant that this God is not only personal, but he is powerful. But when is David using these words? We can't leave the context of our passage. The points come from the text. We can't make this say what it doesn't say. David is saying this in a psalm of lament. David isn't saying that God is personal and powerful on the mountaintop. He's saying that God is personal and powerful in a valley, in darkness. Spurgeon often says that you don't know how bright God's light shines until you're in the darkness. That's how bright it is. Do you remember the book, and, and it was a famous movie, The Never-Ending Story? It's, it's a phenomenal movie, and if you want a good family night with you and your family, there's not a lot of movies that you can kind of watch with all your kids, but The Never-Ending Story is incredible. It's awesome. And it's about a boy, amen, right? I'm getting shouts today, right? It's about a boy who's reading this book that's alive, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. See, parents, you see how easy it is? We can just watch a movie and disciple our kids right there, you know what I mean? And he's reading this book and realizing that this story is actually happening in real time. And the boy is reading this book, and in the book, the main character's name is Atreyu, right? If you name your son Atreyu, Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's so cool. It's the coolest name for any boy in the world, Atreyu. And Atreyu has to slay dragons and fight death and all of these type of things to fulfill his destiny. And he goes through deep, dark valleys, and he's reading and doing all of these things. And Atreyu's last thing that he has to come to in the book is what's called the magical mirror. And one of the characters in the book says, all a tree you has left is the magical mirror. And he says, well, that should be easy. But one of the old sages says, no, it's the most difficult thing that a tree you will face. And the old sage says these words, everyone thinks that the magical mirror would be easy, but kind people find that they are cruel when they look into it. Brave men discover that they are really cowards. Confronted with their true selves, most men run away screaming because they see who they really are. And oftentimes in trial and tribulation and suffering, in those moments we find out who we really are. But not only that, we see how good God really is. And through grief and through suffering and through loss, this can always give us a new perspective of God. Because we understand that Jesus is enough in those moments. We acknowledge the pain. We don't avoid it. But we ask God for a new perspective. But the last thing is this, and this is good. I've been waiting the whole message just to get to this. and be honest with you, okay? And the third thing is this. You have to anchor yourself in God's promises. When the storm of suffering and death blows over your home, you find out what your foundation is built on. Because look at what David says in verse 5. Everything changes in the text. But I have. But. It's a change of thought and idea. And I've often said that I want to do a sermon series sometime called The Great Butts in the Bible. Look at verse 5, right? But I have, right? Just tease and I'm just reading the Bible. Chill out. But I have trusted in your what? Steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your what? Your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully 
with me. David, all of a sudden, in this moment, amidst the trial, amidst the grief, amidst the loss, amidst everything that's happening, begins to recall what God has already done in his life and what God will already do. And I love what he's doing. He's talking in past tense in verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Right in the margin of your Bible, faith. Because what David is saying is, I know what God is going to do. I know what God is going to do. God will bring me through this trial. Warren Wearsby, who's a New Testament scholar, says this. God's people don't live on explanations. They live on promises. And those promises are as unchanging as the character and nature of God. Man, that is good. We don't live on explanations, so stop asking God for all the details. What God has given you is promises, and the promises are good. And listen, this is why I take the Bible serious, man. This is why I take Jesus serious, because I live my life on these words. Monday's coming. Trial is just around the corner. I build my life on the promises of God. And now think of this. We read this psalm in light of the cross. We read this psalm post-cross. And could you imagine, when I was studying this psalm, I thought, what would David do if he came into our worship service? I believe one of the first things that David would ask is, where are the sacrifices? And we would say this, the sacrifices come. David would say, you sing to the Messiah, the resurrected God. David would say, where is the blood? And we would say, it's in the cup. Because he's already shed the blood. We now live our life on the promises of God in light of Jesus Christ. And don't miss this. In John 11, Jesus declares one of the greatest promises that we have. Jesus stands there and looks at death in the face and says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The famous evangelist D.L. Moody said this, One day you will wake up and you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. But my dear friends, do not believe that because Christians do not die. Because death has been defeated. Death for us is not a period, but it is a comma. Death for us is not a closed door, but just a doorway that leads us into eternity. So how can we grieve graciously? How can we grieve and be hopeful? It's this. This is what I want you to leave with today. We grieve graciously because we grieve in light of eternity. Knowing what God has done. That Jesus Christ killed and beat death, is resurrected and ascended on high and seats at the right hand of the Father today. These are the promises of God that we anchor our life on. So I don't know what you're going through today and I don't know what grief that you need to acknowledge first the pain. We don't avoid the pain, we acknowledge the pain. But we in this place today ask God for a new perspective to see this grief and to see this loss in a new and right way. But lastly, all of us leave this place today and we anchor ourselves on the promises of God. The promises of God that death is dead, that Jesus is alive, that God's word is true and that he is coming back. But there's one more promise. So you thought the sermon was over, but it ain't over yet because I got one more promise to read to you and I'm about to burst out of my seat because this is good. 
There's one more promise coming and the apostle John gives it to us and he got to see it and God told John to write this down because this saying is trustworthy and true. And John ends the Bible in Revelation 21 and says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and he will be they will be his people and God himself will be as their God and verse 4 is it he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new because listen there's a day where there's no more funerals Oh, God, this is what we live on in this place today. We anchor our life on the promises of God. And listen to me, if you don't have Christ, you have nothing in this place today. You have no hope because death is the end for you. And I beseech you with the power of God's word and through the Holy Spirit to give your life to Christ today. Come to me, all who are weary and laden all who are sick and depressed and take my burden upon you for my yoke and my teaching is easy and my burden is light. God, there will be a day. I know that when I get to heaven, I'll get to see my granddaddy Bean who I didn't get to know. I'll I'll high five my friends. I'm gonna talk to Moses for a little bit because he was cool. But listen, it's gonna take time because you know why? Because God, I'm gonna be face down before a throne. Oh God, I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him with my eyes. It's going to be this real and I'm going to sing with the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth. And I can grieve now and I can acknowledge that pain. And I know God's doing something in my pain and there's purpose in it. But I'm going to anchor my life on that because I grieve graciously because I grieve in light of eternity. So I don't know what you need to do today. Maybe some of you just need to cry say how long oh Lord how long and acknowledge the pain many of us need to ask God for a new perspective because we've been so selfish in the situation of just how it's been affecting us but ask God what are you doing in me in this situation because God's got to do something in you before he can do something through you and then the last thing is we anchor our life on the promises of God so I want you to come to the tables today see the bread see the cup know that death has been defeated Father God, we come to you today. God, I don't know who needs to be convicted and who needs to be comforted, but you do. God, I don't know who needs to acknowledge the...